that she was surrounded by a half dozen teenagers, some of them leering, others just laughing and smirking. She tried to push her way past her tormentors, but then one of the boys, who seemed to be their leader, grabbed her by the arm and spun her around. Terrified, she reached out and clawed his face. He looked at her with surprise and then rage. He lifted his hand, which held a piece of steel bar, and struck her on the side of the head. It felt as if someone set off a big firecracker inside her skull. There was a flash of white light, accompanied by a searing red pain, and she sank to her knees. Fucking ho! The boy snarled and grabbed her by the hair. He began dragging her up the beach, farther into the shadows beneath the pier. Then someone kicked her in the back, crushing the wind out of her and sending her sprawling headfirst into the sand. She pushed herself back up on her hands and knees, then another firecracker went off in her head. The next thing she knew, she had been turned over on her back and someone was yanking her shorts off. Hold her, the first boy shouted. Hands grabbed her shoulders and legs, pinning her to the ground as he got between her legs. She felt him penetrate her and willed her mind to some other place where the world was still safe and good. The firecracker went off again. Then again. She drifted in and out of consciousness. Faces appeared, some angry, some frightened. Voices taunted her and urged each other to violate her. There was a moment's respite. Then the first boy spoke again. Hey, rat face, you want some of this bitch? Then a new voice entered her head, an evil voice laced with malice. Sure, show you boys how to treat these bitches, the voice said. If you want to teach them a real lesson, you gotta fuck them dirty. A man with a pockmarked face and foul, rotting breath leaned over and grinned in her face. Someone rolled her over. She felt the cool sand on her shattered face. It felt good, and she wondered if these boys would now allow her to die. But the nightmare wasn't over. She felt herself penetrated again, ashamed to be used so horribly. Filthy, dirty, so much shame that she welcomed the new blows to her head, hoping that they would put her out of her misery. Die, she told herself. The police found her standing in the water up to her waist, scrubbing furiously between her legs, trying to wash away the shame of what had been done to her. When one officer got closer, he had to look away for a moment to compose himself. Her face was covered by a sheet of blood, her left eye swollen shut, her right eye hanging half out of its socket. Her lips were split, a black hole where her front teeth had been. She screamed when he reached out for her arm and pulled away from him. Please, ma'am, let me help you to someplace safe. Turning a sightless face toward the officer, she cried, Don't you know there's no such place? Friday, December 10th Hugh Lewis shifted uncomfortably in the chair next to the television talk show host. He'd once played tight end for the semi-pro New Jersey Packers football team as he worked his way through law school. But those days were more than twenty years under the bridge, and the chair complained like a bitter housewife beneath his bulk. An intent young woman dabbed away at the face of the host, Natalie Fitz, with last-minute applications of makeup to disguise encroaching wrinkles and a chronic fatigue that had settled in some years before when she realized that her chances of anchoring network news were slim to none. As he waited for the taping to begin, Lewis mopped away at the interlocking streams and tributaries of sweat that coursed over his broad face. 
One of the reasons for Lewis's prodigious amount of sweat was that he always started producing it when he was preparing to lie. It didn't matter that he lied all the time and, in fact, had made it the hallmark of his legal career. But his body never had gotten used to going along with what his mouth was saying. He guessed it had something to do with the strict Baptist upbringing his dear departed mother had beat into him while he was growing up poor and black in Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. Yet Lewis never worried about the ethics of lying. He'd hated his mother and despised her for working at menial jobs and for being as dark as roasted coffee beans, whereas he'd inherited the milk-chocolate complexion of the father he'd never met. As a kid, he dreamed of the day he could leave Bed-Stuy and his mother. Fortunately, his size and an early athleticism had been enough to get him a football scholarship at a small Virginia college. He'd hoped for an NFL career, but an affection for fast food had buried whatever slim chance he had beneath rolls of fat. So he'd accepted his wink-and-a-nod diploma given to less-than-deserving athletes and moved on to a nondescript law school. He'd graduated with a law degree mostly by cheating and plagiarizing but he'd already developed a reputation for playing the race card when things weren't going his way, so none of his professors were about to challenge him lest they find themselves defending a lawsuit instead of teaching about them. Lewis had perfected the art of sliding through holes to advance himself. He took and passed his bar exam in New York under a program that allowed for a certain amount of leniency for minority students, recognizing that these tests have certain cultural biases that preclude such students from a fair opportunity. His luck continued when he was snapped up by a mid-Manhattan white-shoe firm looking to enhance its position in the black community. He'd put in his time, taking advantage of his status as one of three young lawyers of color, to work half as much as the young white attorneys, and for that matter, the other two minority colleagues. But then he'd noticed that while his color bought him a certain favoritism among the peons, he wasn't going to go much farther up the totem pole. The firm had only one black partner, an older, quiet, Harvard-educated tax attorney named Harvey Adams, who was about as black in terms of how he even viewed himself as Donald Trump. Adams had been added to the partners list the same year that Lewis was born. It dawned on Lewis that he might be Adams' age before the next black would gain that distinction, so he'd quit to hang his shingle in Harlem and took his constituency with him. When the firm's partners complained that he'd signed a no-competition contract and therefore had to return their clients to the firm's fold, Lewis had gone to the newspapers and cried racism. The big white bully, who, by the way, had a glass ceiling when it came to minority partners, was trying to prevent the oppressed young black victim from succeeding. It was his first experience with cultivating the media, and he rather enjoyed the experience, promising himself to employ the technique whenever necessary to achieve his ends. Lewis did not particularly believe that the man was holding down his people. In fact, he much preferred the company of the fawning white liberals who peed all over themselves to coax him into accepting invitations to their parties, living proof that they weren't racists like those Nazis in the Republican Party. The white liberals, who feared unruly blacks the same way the antebellum South used to view a slave uprising, would tell him that they were relieved that they could count on his voice of reason their hearts spilling over with gratitude, they'd contribute to various charitable organizations in the black community. He didn't bother to tell them that most of these were controlled by his employees, who were adept at siphoning off the biggest share for his private bank accounts. 
As a result, Lewis had grown fatter and richer, not necessarily in that order. He'd bought a palatial home on the Upper West Side, close enough to Harlem to appear to be still in touch with my people, but far enough away to alleviate the fears of whites he invited to dinner at his house. Lewis kept a small, plain office in the heart of Harlem. It was the quintessential poor man's lawyer office, furnished with chairs, desks, and tables that looked as if they'd been taken from a high school cafeteria. He put in an appearance two days a week and did a certain amount of pro bono work, especially if there was a possibility of publicity. On the set of the television talk show, Lewis's reverie was interrupted by the angry voice of the young man sitting on the other side of Fitz. What the fuck? Keep that shit away from me. Lewis turned to see his client, Jason Sykes, swatted a makeup girl who was attempting to pat-dry the sheen on his forehead. Summoning a boys-will-be-boys -boys laugh, Lewis patted Sykes on his knee. Now there, Jason, he said. This pretty young lady is just trying to do her job. Remember what I told you about these people being our friends. They're here to see the justice be done. Ain't that right, Natalie? Natalie Fitz hardly heard him. She was musing over her new climb to the top. A friend who owed her a favor had introduced her to Hugh Lewis, and she'd landed the interview that all the major networks, including CNN and Fox, were clamoring for. In a few moments, she'd have an exclusive, not only with Lewis, but the leader of the Coney Island Four. That's right, Jason, Fitz beamed. That's the job of the media. Keep an eye on government, especially an exploitive racist justice system. He returned her smile. I'm sorry. It's just that when you are as young as I was, wrongfully accused but sent to prison anyway...